Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. That's where we are today as we begin this new series of messages, the Gospel of John, chapter 2. Here's the key concept this morning. Jesus is near enough to meet your needs in abundance. In this series of messages, what we're going to do is travel through selected passages in the Gospel of John, and we're going to do that with a particular focus in mind. And the focus is going to be to remind us that while there may be times in life when we feel like we're alone, actually we are never alone. Jesus is always near. That's the title of the series. And loneliness and isolation are critical problems in our society today. People suffer. A journalist named Teresa Woodward uh, reported a study that was undertaken in Parkland Hospital in Dallas, Texas. Now, the study analyzed the user data of their emergency room in that particular hospital. They were particularly focusing on what they call the repeat high-volume users of the emergency room. And as they analyzed the use of their emergency room, they found that in a particular period of time where they were studying, there were 80 individuals who were responsible for 5,139 emergency room visits. Just 80 people responsible for all those. And so they mobilized teams to go to meet with these 80 people to try to discover what was going on in these 80 people's lives and and looking for intersections. What what did they have in common which caused them to to be such high-volume users in their emergency room? And they discovered that the number one shared factor between these 80 people was isolation. They lived alone they didn't have family or friends. They had suffered from loneliness in a, in a particular way. And so, when any little ripple would come into their life, whether it was health-related or not, it could be a financial shortage, or it could be a, sh- a food shortage, or it could be an illness. When anything happened in their lives, they went to the emergency room because there they knew that they would find attention. Somebody would notice them. Somebody would talk with them. Somebody would pay attention to them and seek to meet their needs. When no one else was near, that's how they sought to solve their problems. But I want you to know that Jesus is always near. And He's near enough to work in your life. He's near enough to provide what you need. He's near enough to do it abundantly. That's what we'll see today from the story of the wedding at Cana. In this particular story, you remember this is the very first miracle that Jesus uh, does, that one that's recorded for us at least. He turns the water into wine. So let's look at the first three verses of chapter 2 of the Gospel of John. It says this, On the third day, or it could be translated three days later, on the third day a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and His disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to Him, They have no more wine. We'll pause there. That's the introduction to the first recorded miracle that Jesus does. And it takes place five days after Jesus has encountered Nathanael, who is in other Gospels called Bartholomew. So far in Jesus' ministry life, He has rallied five disciples to His side, uh, Andrew, John, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. And this small but growing group is, has been invited to go to this wedding. 
And the wedding is taking place in a town called Cana, which is in Galilee near Nazareth, and it happens to be the hometown of Nathaniel. We learned that in John chapter 21. So there was some connection there probably uh, to, from Nathaniel to the wedding party. And as they went to the wedding party and the, and the scene played out, of course, the, 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 the feast is ongoing, but they run out of wine. And Jesus is approached by his mother to do something, and the miracle and the wedding itself might have looked something like this. I'm going to show you a brief clip from the series, The Chosen. Let's watch together. Some out and serve it to the master of the banquet. Stop the music! Stop the music! Everyone, listen! I have something I would like to say. I would like to address the bridegroom and the bride families. At every wedding I've ever overseen, they serve the best wine first. And then, when the people have drunk freely, much later in the feast, they serve the poorer wine, the cheap stuff. Because by then, who is going to notice? Am I right? But you, you have chosen now to serve the best wine I have ever tasted. Let us thank them for this unnecessary but honorable gesture. The wedding of Asher, son of Rafi and Dinah, to Sarah, daughter of Abner and Hila, be as pure and as fruitful as this wine. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth the fruit of the vine. To Asher and Sarah! To Asher and Sarah! 
part I love in that is when the in-law points to the, I think that's the father of the groom, points to him and goes like, eh, it was nothing, you know. <laughs> I love this story. And one of the first things I love about the story is the fact that Jesus took time out of his beginning ministry years to go to a party. He didn't have to go to this party. In fact, some might have wondered why he took the time out to do it. I mean, listen, Jesus is starting a world-changing, history-making work among us. He will alter the destiny of our planet. Everybody forever will be affected by his life and ministry. That's not an overstatement at all. Yet, before it really gets started, he takes the time to go to a party. As a matter of fact, if you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus goes to a lot of parties. He seems to enjoy himself in parties. You see, Jesus liked to have fun. He liked to spend time laughing and having a good time. Don't imagine Jesus being the guy at the party with the sad look and the disturbed countenance standing in the corner of the party judging everybody else for the fun that they're having. No, he was in the thick of it, just like in that last scene. He's right in the middle, enjoying himself and enjoying the relationships he has with others. Now, there would be those who probably said, you don't have time for this, Jesus. You've got to get going. And, and it's okay to go to a wedding, but why in Cana, in the middle of nowhere, if this was a big city wedding where you'd have good contacts and you could do some networking, that makes sense. But this one doesn't seem to make sense. And if actually that conversation happened to, with Jesus, I imagine him to respond with, lighten up. I want to go to the party. I want to have some fun. I want to relax. He's not the sullen, silent, slow-motion kind of Jesus that a lot of our movies kind of depict. He's not like that. I imagine God has a sense of humor. And Jesus had a sense of humor when He walked among us. And when He saves us, He saves our sense of humor as well. And He wants us to enjoy life. Life must be celebrated. Just the fact that He goes to the party reminds us Take time to enjoy life. Spend time with the people who are important in your life. Build relationships. Build memories. But in this particular scene, in situation in his life, it was almost about to become a bad memory for not only the married, the couple that's getting married, but also for Mary, the mother of Jesus. In verse 3, it says, When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. There's a sense to which uh, we need to understand Mary is somehow connected here. We don't know why. We don't know how. Uh, we don't know the people who, whose wedding this was. That's, that's really not given to us in the Scriptures. But Cana was very near Nazareth. It's possible that Mary, that this was a relative of Mary, or at least that she had some sort of responsibility in putting on this wedding for the arrangements. And so when they have no more wine, she's concerned. And she ought to be concerned as the wine was running out because, you see, weddings in this culture and in this, uh, in this day and age were really serious big business type of weddings. This is serious stuff. These people uh, would have a wedding reception that would last a week. And people would come from far and wide to join in the facilities. And the arrangements needed to be just right. 
And if the arrangements weren't just right, if the people came from the far distance, usually walking, spending the week of their life celebrating the, the married couple, and it wasn't a good, a good situation, that couple would bear the reputation of that failure for the rest of their lives. They, they would be the ones that people would whisper about. You, know, you remember their wedding? Oh, my gosh, what a fiasco. That was the kind of thing that was going to happen. And so... It was a serious thing. And the other side of it is this. When the guests showed up and they lived and they slept and they ate and they drank for a week, they were expected to bring gifts, good gifts. And if they did not bring good gifts, this couple that was getting married could actually take those people to court, right? What? You come all the way, eat my food, sleep in my house and drink my wine for a week and all I get is this toaster? No, right over to Judge Judy right now. <laughs> so this is serious. And so when Mary said to Jesus, they have no more wine, there's a serious tone in her voice. But Mary comes to Jesus for a reason. And when she comes to Jesus for a reason, feeling the, the burden of this problem, she does not expect Jesus to run down the street to the liquor store. She expects Jesus to do something miraculous. That's what she expects. She expects Jesus to do something miraculous right here, right now. And Mary sees that coming to Jesus is the best way to solve the problem. And there's a little lesson right there. Bringing the problem to Jesus is the best strategy for solving a problem. Because life is a series of finding ways to get things done. Life is a series of encountering strategies to get things done. That's, that's how we live our lives. And sometimes the solution to the problem is something that we really wouldn't think of at first. Maybe we wouldn't make the connection, but you, we need strategies. I, I don't know if you know the name uh, Horst Schultz, but he's the former COO of the Ritz-Carlton hotel chain. And uh, while he was in that position, he, he would do speaking at conferences. I happened to go to one of the conferences where he was a speaker, and he gave a fascinating story about solving problems and thinking through problems in ways that you might not initially uh, think of. And it was, the situation was this. All of a sudden, in many of the Ritz-Carlton hotels, they experienced the situation of a lot of complaints and a lot of complaints about the same thing, and that was that the room service food was getting to the rooms cold. And now people pay a lot of money to stay at the Ritz-Carlton. I can't afford to stay there. And when you pay a lot of money to stay at the Ritz-Carlton, you expect service to be great. But they were getting cold food in their, in their room service, and so uh, that, that complaint got his attention. And usually, he said, when we're going to solve a problem like that, the normal way would be to go down to the, to the, the hotel manager, would go down to the kitchen staff and yell at them, and they'd yell at somebody else, and that person would yell at somebody else, and they'd all try to move a little bit faster to get the warm food to the room. But he said, this time we did something different. Instead of doing that, we engaged in a study. We studied the problem, and we timed how long it took from a the phone call down to the room service uh, for the cook to cook the food, and the food to be put on a plate, and the plate to be put on a tray, and the tray to be taken to the elevator to go up to the rooms. We timed it, and it turns out that it was going great. It was done with speed. It was done with efficiency. There was no problem there, but the elevator was the problem. The staff elevator was the problem. And the solution to the problem had everything to do with 
bedsheets. Now, you wouldn't think that, but what had happened earlier was this. In order to save some money, the managers of many of these Ritz-Carlton's decided, you know, let's not buy so many bedsheets and store them up on the floors for the housekeepers. Let's ask the housekeepers to bring the bedsheets downstairs. We'll launder them quickly and bring them back up, and that way we don't have to buy so many sheets. Sounded like a good plan. But the problem was they didn't account for the fact that that meant that the housekeeping was using up all the elevators all the time. And so the people bringing up the food couldn't get an elevator. So what was solving one problem caused another problem, and they had to have a new strategy. It wasn't intuitive. They had to study it, but there it was. We need a strategy too. Sometimes we need to look at the problem, but always when we look at the problem, we need to present that to God. Larry Crabb puts it this way in one of his books. He says, we should not use God to solve our problems. We should use our problems as an opportunity to find God. And when we find him, we'll find the solution. Now, now Mary knows that. He, she knows that Jesus is the solution. He's the one that's going to bring an effective solution to this situation. But I want you to read the next verse. Look at verse 4. His response, Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. Now, first of all, I want you to see the word woman there because that sounds harsh, doesn't it, to you? Dear woman, we wouldn't, I wouldn't address my mother that way. But in this culture and this particular term, that is not a harsh uh, way to, to address your mother. This is a, a, ten, a word of tenderness. In fact, it's the exact same word that Jesus uses when he hangs on the cross and he speaks to Mary from the cross. So it's, he's, not, he's not speaking harshly to her. But even though he's speaking in a, in a tender way, it still sounds like no to me doesn't it? It sounds like he's saying, no, why do you involve me? In fact, he specifically says, my time has not yet come. And that gives us another insight about Jesus. We learn that Jesus is already aware that he's on a mission and that this mission has a timetable and that he has to stick to the timetable to accomplish the mission. He's on a journey and has a plan and has a purpose. He's not floating through life, seeing what happens. And he realizes that if he were to work some sort of flashy miracle right here with all this crowd here in Cana, with all the people celebrating and everybody watching, if he were to do that, he would get him out of order in terms of the plan that he has for his ministry and life. So he says, my time has not yet come. Now, if I were Mary... I would think I would be getting the message that the answer is no, I'm not going to get involved. But Mary evidently does not hear his response that way. Now, maybe she has a mother's knowledge about her child, that, that he's going to change his mind, that his no is not final. Or maybe, maybe when he gives the word no, she gives back to him the look. Every mother has a look that changes the mind. Whatever happened, in the very next verse, she's confident he's going to do something. Look at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Let's move on and keep reading verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for, holding cere uh, for ceremonial washings, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. 
Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned to wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first when the cheaper, and, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Just like we saw in that little clip. Now there are some wonderful lessons for us here, uh, lessons that we should learn. Number one, Jesus operates with people in mind. He has in mind the need of this couple, this family, these people. Just like Mary, he sees Mary's heart go out to them, and so his heart goes out to them as well. There is a, a, a folder, a pamphlet, I should say, that's used in teaching CPR. And in that pamphlet, it has this paragraph. It says, if you want to save lives, it takes forgetting your pride, altering your plans, rolling up your sleeves, and diving in. That's true, to do CPR. And that's what Jesus knows as well. He's ready to roll up his sleeves and die in, d- dive in. This, this couple comes from a humble background. They really hadn't anticipated uh, the, the wine going so fast. They're not really providing for their guests. Their reputation is going to be hurt by this. And so he cares. He cares about people. And when he's asked to do something that takes him off of his schedule, when he's asked to do something that takes him out of his agenda, His first reaction is, no, this is not my time. No, this is not going to work. But then we see him pause and be willing to get to yes rather than no. He's willing to work to find a way to say yes to this need, even when his first reaction is no. We're on the banks, uh, right on the edge of a new year. I think that would be a good resolution for many of us to say, when I'm tempted to always respond with a no, let me step back and see if there's a way that I can get to a yes. I mean, Jesus could easily have said, hey, I'm off today, right? Or I'm not scheduled to go public until verse 15. You can read, that's what it happens. Not yet, not ready. But he came up with a way to care for these people and at the same time keep on track. So he comes up with a quiet miracle. Look at the people who are aware of this miracle. The servants, nobody's going to pay too much attention to what they say. Jesus, he's not going to say anything about it. Mary, she's not going to say anything about it. And eventually the disciples find out probably down the the line. We should be more like that. When asked to do something, we should be more willing to say, how can I say yes and still keep my life in balance rather than just immediately no? To do that, we would spend more time praying about how we can meet the needs and what God would would want us to do. So that impresses me about Jesus. Secondly, I'm impressed with the fact that He operates with understated power. It's the nature of the miracle itself, and that is that it's not a flashy thing. It's not a hyped-up thing. Jesus doesn't work with hype, but rather it's just power and truth. And He doesn't have to work flashy things to be demonstrating His power and His truth. And thirdly, Jesus operates with what I'll call an abundance mentality. This is a miracle of transformation. It's a miracle of change. It's a miracle of abundance. And it's also a miracle of quality. We saw that in the reaction of the, of the wedding person there, the wedding leader. 
It's abundance. Take into consideration the kinds of jars that are described here. John tells us that these are usually the jars filled with ceremonial washing water. Uh, Each of the jars is 25 gallons at least. There were six jars. That's 150 gallons at least of wine. That's 756 normal wine bottles. Now, I don't know how many people were at this wedding, but that's a lot of wine. It reminds me that Jesus has abundance in mind for us. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says that God can do immeasurably more than all we ask or even imagine. That's abundance. And it's transformation, it's change, it's quality. And that's what the lesson that we, we want to grab hold of today. Jesus is near, and He's the King of every situation we face. When Mary says, do what He says, he means, she means He's in charge. He's the one who's going to solve it. He's the King of this situation. King of the wedding, meeting the needs. And He tailors His provision perfectly to provide and to keep His purpose on track. He's willing to roll up His sleeves and get involved. And that's the point. He's willing to roll up his sleeves and get involved with you as well. He's near enough to take your burden from you. He's near enough to provide the solution. And the solution will always be perfect because he is the provision. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you hear our prayers, you see our needs. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you love us enough to be always near and ready to provide. Holy Spirit, as you work in and through us, we pray that we are the agents of your, your care, your mercy, and your grace. Help us, we pray, in the, in the year ahead to be love in action and to affect others to bring joy in their lives, to lift their spirits and to point them to you. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.